Hey, it's Nathan and Sean again. We want to welcome you back to the 13-week Bible Season 2, we're at episode 11, ahead of week 10's reading as we continue this exciting, rapid journey through the Bible in just 13 weeks. We're both enjoying our read and learning new things along the way. We hope the same for you. Today we're previewing the rest of Ezekiel and then moving through Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and most of Zechariah. This will bring us to the edge of the Jesus story with the first day of next week landing us in Matthew. We'll spend the final three weeks in the Jesus and early church stories. Wow, it's been quite a ride so far, hey Sean? <laughs> yeah, as you're, as you're firing off all those names, I feel like I'm just kind of in a, a children's you know, memorization, memorizing the, the names of the Bibles, the Bible, uh, you know, exercise, all those tongue twisters, you know, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all that. Right. Yeah. It's incredible. Today we're um, 13 full or partial books in mm. conversation. So this week's reading is the most books in one week to date. Most. I haven't mm. checked with the, like the Small books in the New Testament. I'm not yeah. sure how fast those go, but so we're getting a lot of bang for our buck today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. And I just wanted to observe that folks who are reading through, or listening through, or going through the Bible in some way, uh, you've been at this for ten weeks, mm. and uh, the best is still just around the corner with the Jesus story starting next week. Mm. Um, Finally, alas. Yes, alas, we'll be there. So keep sticking with the story. I guess um, the one thing I want to hold out, which you're probably um, seeing already, is that if we stick with the story, some of the questions we had in the past start to resolve or find answers as we continue with the story. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, you got anything that you would no, add at this point? Not, not at this point, not, not in an okay. introductory thought. We just, yeah, let's get into the text, Nathan. Awesome. So one of the things I noticed, or two of the things before, I'm going to do a quick review of the books, but because we got off that last week, we just jumped right in and, and uh, had a great conversation. Um, but this week, going to do the sort of the habitual review that we've done, that I've done earlier. Um but a couple things. One is what has struck me in this section of reading is that God clearly has a plan for Israel that's unique. Like you read through and find, I think it's Ezekiel, where Ezekiel, um, where God speaking to the nations in Ezekiel says, I'm going to restore you as well, or I'm going to wipe you out. Um, like there's, there's kind of a mix of things. But Israel always is, at the end of the day, there's the sense that, that God is going to do something great with Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's the, you know, that's the thread that's woven throughout Scripture that, you know, as we kind of, I think I talked about last week, there is a sense in which God is, has an exclusive call on people. That's the pattern. And uh, it's not because God loves them more. It's not because God, they're, you know, inherently better. It's because God has specific purposes mm -hmm. he's trying to accomplish in the world. And he's using a people to accomplish those, or hopefully he's trying to get them to accomplish them. But 
as we've seen, it doesn't always go very smoothly. Right. And there's a lot to think about along those points. I think I'll leave that for um, perhaps someday in the future. I think it's worth noting that um, this theme does continue into the Jesus and early church stories, but it becomes clear that God wasn't after a genetic, sort of pure genetic people. We do see sort of that genetic language in the beginning, but it's clear as the story develops that God's actually looking for people who reflect his character of goodness and identify with him as the one they want to um, live their lives in harmony with rather than uh, being able to look up their genes on a website and fit within a certain family genome. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And as you said, that'll be kind of explicitly pointed, you know, brought out in, in Paul, for example, who's mm-hmm. not those who are Israelites of the flesh, but, you know, those who are by faith, who are God's, you know, called. Mm-hmm. But it's a fascinating story to follow, so to keep stay tuned. There, There is something there that, again, could use a whole lot of discussion. Idolatry comes up again, and I just, uh, I guess I'm mentioning this sort of introductory comments, but I was just kind of very aware that idolatry is a major thread that continues all the way through these, uh, what have been called minor prophets that we'll be working through today. All right, let's do a quick recap. Um, Ezekiel 24 to 40, Ezekiel's messages uh, to Israel and surrounding peoples, especially Egypt and Tyre, then 40 to 48 focus on God's magnificent dream for his people that can be, if they want it, Daniel. It's written by the Hebrew exile Daniel from within the Babylonian empire with the exception of chapter four, which is written by the great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is a unique book among the ancient Hebrew prophets, although it bears some similarities to Ezekiel, the most closely related book perhaps not surprisingly, is the final book of Scripture in the form we have it, and that is Revelation. Daniel's ministry begins during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and Jehoiakim, or Eliakim at birth, in Jerusalem. Daniel's primary focus is the unfolding saga of empires beginning with Babylon. He especially focuses on how these coming empires will impact God's people, pointing to the ultimate establishment of an eternal global civilization set up by God himself. Uh, Hosea speaks to uh, the kingdom of Judah as well as Israel, and his ministry overlaps with Isaiah, Amos, Micah, and perhaps another of the prophets. Uh, He's among the Hebrew people in the land of Israel. Joel uh, offers a call to repentance and a dire warning of consequences. His book's timing is uncertain, though it may be related to a plague of locusts. Amos begins in the year of King Isaiah of Judah, before the downfall of the northern kingdom. His ministry overlaps with Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, and there may be another one in there, but there is definitely overlap. Obadiah, it's a single chapter and focused on warnings, uh, directed at the people of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Jonah, well-known book, and his message is directed toward the people of Nineveh. Micah is likely a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, etc. He too carries a warning to God's people and also includes 
um, messianic uh, prophecies. Nahum comes between Micah and Habakkuk, warning of the downfall of Nineveh. Habakkuk, prophetic challenge to God for his use of the wicked Babylonians to punish Israel, a book that took on greater significance in this run-through. Habakkuk, uh, his ministry is around the time of Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, Zephaniah takes place during the reign of Josiah, thus overlapping with Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel as well. Habakkuk uh, might be in that uh, parallel as well. Haggai is written after the return of the Babylonian exiles, urging them to be faithful in the work of rebuilding the temple. His ministry overlaps Daniel, Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Then we get to Zechariah, the first 10 chapters. His ministry is focused also among the exiles who have returned to rebuild, and his ministry overlaps with Haggai, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So, wow. of a quick and dirty recap. That was a sprint. You, uh, <laughs> I'm impressed as well that you were able to recite that all from memory. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, no, yes, from my I, notes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm just kidding. I think, I think this kind of speaks to one of the, the benefits of, again, a quick read because, I, you know, there are nuances in these little books, but largely it's, it's broadly themed, like the general mm-hmm. message is, you have done, you know, you have, have done wicked, <laughs> come back to God. Like that's, that's what I take from a lot of these, you know, a lot of these books, um, these, these minor prophets. Right. Um, again, there's more to it than that, but a quick read, you know, kind of that's the pervasive message that I get from reading these books. Yeah. And I would say that may not, that's not that much of an oversimplification. Yeah. It's God is really truly working to bring his people around before things just completely fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um of course some of those are in the the rebuilding side after the exile, but most of the prophets that that were mentioned are mm-hmm. are uh, exile or pre-exile prophets. God again voice after voice after voice which speaks to the goodness of God calling his people <clears throat> calling his people to to loyalty to doing right you're muted Sean oh now now of course there are ones like Jonah where it's not mm-hmm. you are my people come back to me it's a message to the other nations in this case you know Nineveh the Assyrians so um, there is that element of of God's mercy for, for other peoples. Going back to the question of genetics, it's not a question of genetics. Mm-hmm. It's God, you know, reaching out to the surrounding nations. So there's some of that as well. But by and large, it's mostly directed towards, you know, Israel or Judah, as the case may be, um, of that invitation to repentance and uh, to return to Him. Hmm. So let's jump into Ezekiel. Uh, we are, I think we're starting in 24 through the end of Ezekiel. Anything that stood out to you in Ezekiel, Sean? Well, I mean, I go right to my favorite, maybe, well, I don't know if it's my favorite chapter in Ezekiel, but at least in this section, um, well, 
I should say there's two chapters that are my favorite. So Ezekiel 34 is this beautiful messianic prophecy in many ways. Um, and I think we're going to hear echoes of this in Jesus' ministry where Jesus, uh, God is rebuking the, uh, the shepherds of Israel. And mm -hmm. they have not cared for you know, his people, they've exploited his people, they've neglected his people. And um, he basically says, you've been terrible shepherds. And mm -hmm. he says, you know what I'm going to do because of that? He says, I myself am going to search for my sheep. You guys have not done a good job, so I'm going to take over. And, and we come to Luke 15, and that is the background, I think, to Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. Um, mm -hmm. when he, uh, and he's, he's spending time with, with, uh, you know, the sinners and the tax collectors and the leaders say, you know, grumble about it. And, uh, Jesus is basically saying, listen, I'm doing what you were supposed to be doing. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm searching for the sheep. So that's, that's one of my favorite chapters in Ezekiel. And then the other one is Ezekiel 36, where, you know, God is, and I see you smiling, Nathan, because I know you probably like this as well, um, where God is basically saying to Israel uh, or Judah, um, you know, you have profaned my name among the Gentiles. You have made me look bad. Mm -hmm. And that's what bad religion does. It doesn't simply, you know, make us look bad. It it um, profanes God's name among the surrounding nations. And mm. it's just a tragic, you know, as, as uh, Brendan Manning famously said, the single greatest cause of atheism today is people proclaiming Jesus with their lips and then denying him by their life. And it's like very, very sobering and confronting where, you know, it speaks, by the way, to God's humility where he allows his name to be tarnished, as it were, by his people. Um, but then, of course, he promises them that he is going to, you know, give them a new heart. And he's going to take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And it's such a beautiful promise. And um, anyway, that's those are the things that jump out at me in those chapters. Yes, and um, I think along those lines, the idea that the sanctuary was a place for God's name. It's an interesting thing mm -hmm. I think we talked about, but that came up, up for sure in the early weeks of the reading. And here we find it again that God's name, his character, who he is, a radical lover, that that is the thing that really matters. And his people have a responsibility when they claim association to him to hold that character um, and demonstrate it because there's profound implications for misrepresenting, well, as you've mentioned. Well, this is really what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. You know, mm. this is this is carrying that name and yet making it look bad and and basically carrying God's name through the mud. Um Yes, it's probably, we shouldn't say, oh, my G-O-D. You know, I'm not encouraging that. But I think the larger, you know, going back to Exodus 20, the larger, you know, original meaning was don't take on my name and then portray my character in this way. Because mm -hmm. um, there's just, 
dire consequences. And again, it's not because God has an inferiority complex. We've talked about this repeatedly. It's not because God just has a craving to be you know, praised or to look good. It's because he knows that optimal human flourishing can only come about when people are clear on who he is. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to read those words of promise in Ezekiel 36. Mm. Um, Starting at 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Remember that theme of idolatry Mm. is pervasive. Mm. And here God's saying, okay, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. I'll do this for you. And and uh, just to underscore this for one second, in the Hebrew, it actually emphasizes the I, like I will do this. Hmm. It's like a double I in the Hebrew, but we won't get into the weeds too much. Thank you, Sean. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Mm, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, and I think some echoes, uh, New Covenant echoes too, not necessarily mm. worded mm-hmm. the same as we see it, say, in Jeremiah or quoted in Hebrews, but it's thematically identical. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I, and I think the, the other thing that... Um, strikes me from the book of Ezekiel, is just how often God explains the reason for the way history unfolds, the reason that certain things are going to happen to his people and then to other nations related to um, this idea that the nations have an opportunity to, to do right to make the best of their opportunity, but when cruelty and um, when, when moral collapse takes place, God God's relationship to them changes in a way, and in some way he shifts how he relates to them, um, and their fortunes shift. Mm. Um I don't know if there's a better way to explain that, but I think that's just interesting. And for me, what struck me is that with Daniel and Revelation, this this way that God relates to the nations that's kind of explained in detail in Ezekiel and some of the other prophets is not relegated to the ancient Hebrew people and that time frame, but is the nature of human history and the rise and fall of civilizations. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And certainly that's going to come out loud and clear, as you kind of alluded to in the book of Daniel, where yeah. very aware of world history and mm-hmm. surrounding, the surrounding peoples. Right. Uh, one line that was fascinating, if a nation is not righteous, should it have a right to occupy the land? That's a concept. Not sure that one's a quote, but it's mm. a concept mm-hmm. that comes up on a handful of occasions named specifically where God's like, this is my land. 
if a nation is not righteous and is just mm-hmm. brutal and wicked, do they have a right to be here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there like, that we're... Yeah, God, God's the landlord of the whole world. And so he's like, listen, right. if they're not, if they're not uh, being good tenants, then I have the right to, to kick them out. But yeah. Yeah. So we will get lost in Ezekiel if we don't move forward. <laughs> I would say um, 40 through, through the end, Isaiah 40 through the end of the book, pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, do know, I don't know exactly how to relate to it. I'll be honest with you. It's just kind of like an overview of the temple and, you know, worship and I think in some ways it's probably looking forward to, you know, it's kind of apocalyptic in in, in some ways, um, in the sense of looking forward to the the fulfillment of all things, and maybe it has a future application. Um, you know, it talks about the healing waters and the trees. Maybe that has echoes of Eden and Eden restored, um, but. Yeah, there's a lot in there that could definitely be be slowed down and soaked for all their worth. I mean, my take on that is that basically God was holding out his dream for Israel. Here's what can be. If you want it, here's what can be. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I don't know when I read it through, especially 43, it seems to be a literal plan that God had. I mean, he did make water come from the rock, right? During the Exodus. So it, it seems quite conceivable that, that this plan for a temple out of which a river would flow that would sweeten the waters on the way and be a place for lots of fishing and trees to grow along its banks. It seems like that's not a, a far shot. That if Israel had really wanted it, that they, this, they literally could have been a kind of Edenic civilization yeah, yeah. no not it's just interest- morally but physically yeah no it's an interesting mental exercise uh, kind of the what if like how would have things played out if israel had been faithful if israel mm-hmm. had had fulfilled you know god's great dreams for them you know what what would the world look like right now i don't know it's a very interesting it is mental exercise well and you take this right? The beginning uh, chapters of Ezekiel are pretty foreboding. Um, Ezekiel has almost a dark, not dark in morally, but just almost a depressed kind of feel to it at the beginning because it's pretty harsh, Mm -hmm. straight, um, dramatic warnings. Mm -hmm. And then you have this at the end. So Ezekiel starts with that heaviness. And then at the end, there's like this magnificent painting um, of what can be where God's God is through Ezekiel, both warning and then at the end saying, listen, guys, if you'll get this, I have big, big dreams for you that you, you, you can't even wrap your head around it. But here's what it could potentially look like if you want to get on board with me. Your future can look dramatically different. I mean, we're talking about people who were were starving in the city at during those last days, like just miserable existence. And God's saying, listen, if you'll just get on board with me, I have so much for you. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like the mirror image of the book of Genesis, where it starts out with the glory. It starts out with Eden. 
And then by the mm. end, you know, by the end, Joseph's in a in a tomb. You know, there's death. There's yep. there's sadness. There's darkness. So yeah, it's it's like the antithesis of of Genesis in some ways. Mm. Well, we got to move on to Daniel. Mm. Um, favorite from Daniel. Daniel's quite a different book, definitely speaking. I think you met, we mentioned like Jonah speaks to the Ninevites. Daniel, I think, is a special message to the Babylonians and the the, the uh, Medo-Persians. does include messages to God's people, but it's not as focused on God's people um, as it Daniel. is the land in which Daniel lives. Well, you and I, an exile. you and I come from a faith community where Daniel is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating, though, if you step outside of our kind of our under, you know, not our understanding, but our context, is that a lot of people just don't know what to do with Daniel. Beginning mm-hmm. with beginning with Jews, um, if you go to the uh, what is called the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible, our book of Daniel is right in the middle of the prophets, and and there and their ordering of the Tanakh. And presumably this is the way Jesus related to it as well, because this is the way it was constructed, um, you know, from a long time ago. Daniel is actually in the section called the writings. So it's Hmm. like, it's like in the poetry section. Um, So, so they're, they're not sure what to do with Daniel. Um, They don't know if it's, you know, if he's a prophet, they don't know if it's a, a book that's predicting future events to them. It's like poetry. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I've, I have many Jewish friends and when I've, whenever I've sat down to talk to them about Daniel, they're just like their eyes glaze over and they're like, I have no idea what the book of Daniel. I hmm. like one of my rabbi friends was like, I don't know that I've really read the book. of Daniel. <laughs> it's like, what in the world? Um, and then not to mention, you know, the rest of the Christian world is kind of, yeah, there's a few stories like Daniel and the lions and everybody knows that story. But um, beyond that, it's just like, yeah, I don't know what to do about the book of Daniel. It seems like a lot of, well, like Ezekiel, there's some strange things going mm-hmm. on with different beasts and all this. So yeah, Daniel, again, you and I, and probably some of our listeners kind of like, we, we know Daniel like the back of our hand, not that we understand all of it, but like we're very familiar with it and I think it's, that's good, but I think it's also good to try to read it with fresh eyes and not all mm. of the, not all of the assumptions that we've, we've inherited. Hmm. That's a great reminder. I think to all of us to try to come back to scripture fresh when we do. Um, this goes along with Ezekiel 28 in the sense that um, Ezekiel 28 seems to sort of step outside the flow of everything else in Ezekiel and speak to larger realities in the struggle between good and evil. And that definitely seems to be a flavor that comes into Daniel, almost like Daniel is the curtain pulling back for a moment on history to come. Um, But speaking of reading it with new eyes, the last time I went through Daniel more slowly, I was really impressed by how much it speaks to the goodness of God reaching out to the heart of a pagan emperor or mm, king. Mm, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. Babylonian, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but Darius mm-hmm. as well. 
Um, Belshazzar, he's trying Belshazzar, to Belshazzar, right, yeah. that there is this big part of the book that's, again, not just prophecy like we have um, in Jonah speaking to the people of Nineveh, although, although that's uh, also a redemptive uh, push for the people of Nineveh. So I just think, for me, that was a thing that struck me, is that there's a big chunk of this book that is a book to win the heart of peoples in a non-Hebrew, what mm-hmm. would be called generically a pagan mm-hmm. Um, civilization. Like God's like, hey, my people don't want me, but here, I'm here for you too. And I would Mm -hmm. love for you to know me. Mm -hmm. I think also in Daniel, we get maybe, I don't know if I'd say for the first time, but there's definitely, again, pulling back the curtain, he points to the fact that there are these forces Mm. that externally, or maybe even, you know, probably I would interpret somewhat even internally that are trying to frustrate the plans of God, the, the ways of God. And mm-hmm. it's not just, yes, um, you know, my people have rebelled and I'm calling them back to me. There's, there's that sense in Daniel nine where Daniel is pouring out his heart to God and saying, we have sinned, we have broken covenant with you. But there's also these nefarious powers that are trying to frustrate not only the plans of God, but the character of God. And we mm-hmm. see that especially in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, where there's this, this little horn, as, as it's called, that is kind of trying to cast down God's name, mm-hmm. so to speak. And my sense is that Again, it's maybe not necessarily an external force. This is a maybe a religious power mm. that is blaspheming God. You know that mm. that term is used. He has blasphemous names. You know, um, and he's he's kind of making himself equal with God. Mm. And um, and and Daniel's like, well, how long? You know, he overhears this conversation. Maybe I'm getting ahead of of the story here, Nathan, so forgive me, but he hears this this discussion between angels, like how long is this going to last where there's this, you know, blaspheming of God's name and, and, and maybe counterfeiting God's, God's name. And he finally hears this, well, 2,300 days, and then Mm. it's going to be set. It's going to be set right. And um, I think that's fascinating because it kind of does pull back the curtain on Mm -hmm. these larger, realities taking place where God understands that there are these nefarious forces that are trying to counteract his character and his ways. Yeah, and uh, it occurs to me that Daniel references both um, um, angelic good forces in Daniel— mm-hmm but mm-hmm. also references um, resistance, demonic forces in his book. So I, I think it's valuable to note that the, the rhythm of history um, and God's engagement with the human story that we find fairly detailed in Ezekiel is, is how this thing unfolds. We just don't have as much of a detailed narration of it when we get sort of beyond the return of the exiles. Once we come to the end of Malachi, um, we have sort of a very limited telling or 
prophetic narrative, but it's following the same sort of interaction process of nations having an opportunity to do right. And then um, whatever they do with that has implications for what happens next. The other thing that's interesting is we do have Babylon in Ezekiel, the Babylonian empire. And when we get to the book of Revelation, and even some in Daniel, we find another power that's similar to Babylon, but operates in a more spiritual or religious realm, as opposed to the largely political realm of the Ezekiel Babylon. That's a lot for us to talk about. Um, (laughs) And so I would say follow our course catalog here at Love Shaped Life, because uh, we have in our plans to specifically dial into Daniel, Revelation, um, some of this prophetic storyline in Scripture. So so um, keep your eye on our course catalog. We'll be adding. And I'll just point this out, because this point, whenever I read Daniel, it jumps out at me, and it jumped out at me again. Daniel itself says, at least parts of it says this, vision or this prophecy or this book is speaking of the time of the end Hmm. so he's like seal it up tie it up like put it away put it in you know the the bottom drawer of your desk like it's for a future time and daniel Hmm. is like daniel himself is like i have no idea what i'm what i've seen i don't understand it and it's almost like according to the narrative like God's like, yeah, you're not supposed to understand it because it doesn't mm. apply to you. It's not mm-hmm. about you. Mm-hmm. And so when I've read that, every time I read it through, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, that's that's very fascinating that there is, at least according to the book, it applies to, from Daniel's day, it applies to some future period. And according to the way it's you know, articulated, the time of the end, quote unquote. Mm. So that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to move on. I, I yeah, will refrain do. from speaking further. <laughs> Hosea, we're <laughs> shifting gears. Hosea, again, as a reminder, um, is written uh, by a, a prophet who lives among the Hebrew people and um, before the Assyrian captivity. So right around the time just before the people of Israel fall to the Assyrians. Kingdom of Judah, again, remember, lasts a little bit longer, falls to the Babylonians. Uh, Hosea is before that time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big thing for me in Hosea is how Hosea's kind of his specialty, if you would, is God using him to speak to the divine romance, if you would, of God with his people and the stinging betrayal um, that comes when his people. Um, play the the prostitute mm-hmm. that prostitute language isn't new it's we've seen it in ezekiel etc but hosea's it's it's kind of a broken love story mm, absolutely um you know the version i was reading put it in very graphic and and jolting terms god says to hosea go marry a whore and that's the term that the version i use like whoa okay here this is <laughs> this is strong language but um but that's that's the message of it. Like, it's one of the craziest stories. And I think I remember a few years ago there was even a Hollywood movie based upon Hosea, or you know, Hollywood-ish. Um, 
where God's just like, yeah, go marry a prostitute because that's what my relationship has been like with you guys. Hmm. And, um, and then he, you know, throughout the book, he's trying to communicate his love for his people. And, you know, the, the prostitute, you know, Gomer, she is unfaithful after the marriage. Mm-hmm. So like, he's like, go get her again and go get her again. And just, again, it speaks to the faithfulness of God mm-hmm. and his promise to like remain committed and in covenant relationship. And he ultimately does promise mm-hmm. that there will come a time where you're going to be faithful. And that's, that's quite remarkable. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the picture, and this is in uh, the early part of the book, but the idea of God saying, I'll draw you back in. I'll win your heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stay mm-hmm. at this until I win your heart and you realize how beautiful I am. Mm-hmm. And you will no longer call me my master, but you will call me my husband. Hmm. The, the term for master there, by the way, is bail. You will no longer call me my bail. You will call me my husband. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. That's awesome. So we're on to Joel. And um, Joel is a hard book to sort of locate in the historical narrative. I don't know if you have any insight on that. I do not have special insight into Joel. No, I, you know, I like Joel. Seems like a nice guy, but I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, real well versed in, in Joel and his ministry. And like you say, there's like basically no historical context. We know he's the son of Pethuel, but that's all we know. We don't know, you know, he doesn't introduce the book by saying it was in the year of, you know, third year of Josiah or whatever. So we're just kind of get after it. But, you know, again, the basic message is come back to me. Right. Uh, The one thing in Joel that you'll notice is there's a a couple of prophetic elements specifically one related to the prophetic gift coming on um, at some point future of Joel's writing. Yeah. There's this idea of the prophetic gift being poured out on, on people. And it's kind of unique to Joel. I suppose that's kind of the thing that um, in some circles is, is the, the common Joel reference is that idea. Right. Certainly the New Testament brings that one out. My my right. spirit will be poured on all flesh and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. You know, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Mm-hmm. Daughters as well, Nathan. Daughters That's as right. well. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, used at the time of Pentecost mm-hmm. as yep. um, a fulfillment of the words of Joel. That's right. So Amos, Amos is... Um, He is located in history. He's in the year of King Isaiah of Judah. And also, like Hosea speaks before the downfall of the northern kingdom, which is Mm -hmm. the 10 tribes that had separated um, earlier in the story. Mm -hmm. So that that makes him a contemporary of Isaiah. That's right. And um, I think, you know, although it seems trivial, those things can be helpful and and you know, filling out the picture because, you know, when you think of what was going on during Isaiah's day, you can jump over to Amos and say, okay, here's another take on, on a lot of the same stuff. 
Exactly. And it helps, as you know, some of the other books, um, including the historical books, Kings and Chronicles, give you some sense of the history. Mm-hmm. And so as you're reading, right. it helps you to know, okay, this is the the time frame, the situation into which the prophet was speaking. So it's not sort of just a, a, a voice ringing from the historical past somewhere, but actually speaking to a specific known historical situation, as well as we can know it this this far uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I don't know, I don't have anything specific um, that shows up in Amos that is so much unique. Um, it is a book of warning. I think the mm-hmm. big the big thing to me is how God sends multiple prophets simultaneously to try to stop the the this downward spiral his people are on. That for me is an amazing thing. Mm. That he joins the voices of other prophets, even though he's got a small book, he's speaking simultaneously to try to prevent this catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So then there's Obadiah. <laughs> Interesting book. Um, and it is actually a single book. And single this chapter. one speaks to... Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I guess <laughs> they're all single books. Single <laughs> chapter. Thank you. Um, speaking to the downfall or the judgment of the people of Edom, who are the descendants of Esau. Yeah, fascinating. Because again, those are not, the Edomites are not uh, Israel. They're not Israelites. They have a Mm -hmm. common ancestor, but they are not, you know, in the direct line of, of Israel. So, yeah, God's judgment on Edom. And then we're into Jonah. Jonah is uh, only a little bit longer than Obadiah, although it's divided into four chapters in most Bibles. I don't think we need to talk more, uh, a lot about that story. The one thing I would say is my last close look at the book of Jonah drew me to the conclusion that Jonah wrote this story as a testimony after his experience. And I hadn't really thought of it that way. That may hmm. be obvious to some, but... Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. Jonah was really persuaded of God's goodness after his experience and shares his, his troubled journey as a testimony to God and his goodness and an urging of others to, to follow in his footsteps. Not, not the running away footsteps, but the recognizing God is good. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Um, it's kind of a funny way to end if that's the, if that's where Jonah got to, because either we lost the last chapter or right. it's not really this climactic aha moment. It's kind of like Jonah's reluctant to <laughs> acknowledge right. God's goodness and, and mercy. But um, yeah, he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't make himself look very good in the story. No, you know, he doesn't. If he's the author of it, but that's, that's cool too. Like, uh, you know, we see the warts of all of God's people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So fascinating story. I think we'll just leave it at that. We'll let you read it. You've heard the story of the fish it, before. So. Everybody knows the story of Jonah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then we're in Micah. Micah is also a contemporary with Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. And um, 
So he's speaking to is uh, to uh, let's see, speaking to Judah before the Babylonian exile, uh, also during the reign of Hezekiah, and uh, seeking again another voice, just really working to turn the tide, if possible, from the impending uh, collapse. Mm-hmm. And you know, throughout these. Throughout these prophetic books, there are there are warnings, but there's also these beautiful promises of what it could look like when they, hmm. you know, if they did return, you know. And that day says the Lord, this is Micah four six. And that day says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcasts a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on forever. So there's a beautiful imagery of what it could be. And then, of course, um, you probably would get to this part, but, you know, Micah 6.8, right, is a very a very well-known uh, prophetic passage. Where well, can God I jump is, in before that, before you read do, Nathan, that? Micah 5.2, yeah. you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, mm shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from mm. ancient days. So you mentioned mm. on, on one hand, there's this, these um, prophecies of a bright future, mm-hmm. but then also messianic pieces tucked in there here in Micah 5. There's that messianic hope. Um, and, and not just, you know, there's, of course, we could talk about another king, but we don't have the privilege of just seeing it as another king mm-hmm. or some kind of new deliverer, like another Samson or something. This one's unique because mm-hmm. Micah includes that line that that um, he's it's been going, coming forth from of old. So we know this is much more. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. just that's incredible. I, I Man, mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, how many folks, you know, the, the, the faithful among them who read the book of Micah or heard Micah speak. I wonder how many of them keyed into that and, and really their imagination started running, thinking, what is going on here? Because this is, this is something extraordinary that Micah is, is speaking mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and so then, do I have permission to go to Micah? Yes, you do. Yeah, please, All right. Isaiah thank six. You, thank you. Uh, Micah, no, sorry, Micah. Six, my, sorry, Micah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, kind of the background that we have touched on before, but need to mention it again is yes, the people have been guilty of idolatry, but that has also been connected to and perhaps led to this, you know, this terrible climate of injustice and oppression mm. and taking advantage of the poor and the widowed and the orphans and so forth. And so that's a message too, like treat, treat these people with integrity and love and justice and all that. And of course, Micah 6, 8, he's like, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what I'm mm-hmm. asking you, what God's asking you is to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So, you know, it's justice, it's mercy, it's walking in concert with God. And that's just a beautiful invitation. It kind of, kind of, um, just reduces it to the, 
that's the core of what it's what it's all mm-hmm. about. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's in so many ways it's the first and second greatest commandment: love God, love people, mm-hmm. right? It's do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God, and uh, that's just a beautiful reminder of what the whole thing is all about. That's right. So, and this is a plug for a future, uh, actually for season three, um, a couple of friends and I are going to go through this Bible in 13 weeks again, just like Sean and I are, but we're going to focus on that social social justice, if you would, thread in scripture specifically mm. as we work through. We're going to talk about how this shows up over and over and over and over again in the text look, of scripture. I look forward to hearing that. So that'll be, you said a couple friends, Steve, is it what you were saying? Yeah, Steve, uh, Steve Allred and TJ mm-hmm. True. Nice. Yeah, I'll it's going to be good. So we're on to Nahum. Nahum is, uh, looks like it's between Micah and Habakkuk, and it's a warning of the downfall of Nineveh. So why, mm-hmm. why does God speak to the nations? I mean, we have mm. Egypt, Babylon, Nineveh. Nineveh gets two books. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it obviously speaks to his universal care and concern. He mm. he has obviously a unique, special relationship with Israel, but he has deep, deep love and concern for those not of Israel. And mm-hmm. the reason is not because he's trying to exert his, you know, his supremacy. It's not because he's trying to obliterate these nations. As we talked about last week, he wants justice across the, the whole earth, right? He wants he wants the well being of every every person, every creature, every man, woman, child, animal, you know? Um I mean we didn't talk about that, but uh in Jonah he even cites how many cattle there are in Nineveh that he's worried about. So mm-hmm. like this just speaks to the universal love and concern that God has for all. And um, he wants, he wants flourishing and justice and mercy to be going on in every corner of, of the earth. So um, insofar as these other nations are not acting according to his law of love, he has a bone to pick with them, so to speak. Hmm. Um, as Actually, just by coincidence, I was listening to a sermon this week by a friend of mine who is noting actually the story of Jonah, and we don't probably understand just how barbaric the Assyrians were. I mean, they were like the height of barbarism, like just the, the level of violence and and destruction that they pursued you know goes beyond anything that any of us have probably encountered i'm willing to say on this podcast and it wasn't it, it was way worse than the babylonians it was worse than the egyptians mm. like when they went forth to to war it was like they were after complete annihilation and they would do it in ways that are unspeakable so I mean, why would God not concern himself with such reprehensible behavior? I would mm. be really troubled if he didn't. 
That's a great point. And I, the other point is, uh, I think the other piece of that is that God also in the book of Jonah invites them to do, to choose a different course. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and just that's what a, they do. a beautiful picture of accountability, but, but grace and goodness in the story that God, yeah. And that's a whole different, uh, we could go a long ways down that. Um, down that trail. Habakkuk is... Oh, go ahead. No, no, I mean, just it's just fascinating to me that Nineveh is one of the oldest cities in the world, the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of adds a little um, a little you know, nuance to the story is that it's, uh, it's a, you know, an old ancient city that um, you know, God's always probably had his eye on and cares mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then into Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is also a short book, and um, it looks like it's around the time of Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, although mm-hmm. it is not mentioned. We don't get a solid historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know it... it I mean, we do get the sum framework because he, um, Habakkuk is directed at the Babylonians and mm-hmm. the Babylonians being used, um, in a sense, as a discipline to Israel. And Habakkuk is just really thrown by that, how God mm-hmm. could allow the Babylonians, who are not God-fearing people, who... Um, he has his ways of describing it, um, that that God would allow them this this power over the Hebrew people, and uh, this is really puzzling to Habakkuk, which fascinatingly is not an uncommon question for human beings. How does does mm-hmm. one wicked power get to rise in ascendance? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Nathan, arguably, if we don't have the book of Habakkuk, we'd never have a Protestant Reformation, hmm. um, or at least the way it took, because it was this line from Habakkuk that Paul quotes in Romans, mm-hmm. the just shall live by faith, mm-hmm. or in Habakkuk, he actually says the just shall live by his faith, which is a whole yeah. other story. But anyway, yeah, there's... You know, it's just fascinating how they all get woven together and uh, lead to surprising results. Yep. So the the Habakkuk, I as I was listening to it this time, I thought, you know, Habakkuk asks this question. He he at least he poses to God his bewilderment as to why Babylon is um, used or allowed to do what it does like god you're righteous how in the world can you can you just turn away and like pretend this isn't happening or or however he words that uh, and then in chapter two so i thought well i should pay attention here because this is a question that's been going on in my mind is um understanding kind of god's involvement with the nations because he's obviously not the one um you know, the, the Babylonian invade, invaders are not filled with the Holy Spirit, as you, you, you might put it. 
to destroy the Hebrews. Right, this is not the case. God is not there urging the Babylonians on to do their evil work. And um, so what comes clear in the book in chapter two is this idea painted out very specifically that the downfall of nations is the fruit of the seeds basically they've planted. When you've mistreated other nations, you've oppressed them. The time's coming when the tables will turn. And so for me, um, that's kind of what I had thought before. But for me, seeing it painted there in Habakkuk, God is essentially saying, you know, I'm not the one stirring up the Babylonians against the Hebrews. The Hebrews have pursued a course of action with the nations toward Babylon, etc., and there are certain repercussions that come as history unfolds. Um, so I just liked how Habakkuk actually spells it out in a way that I've, I've kind of been looking for and, and heard it in a new way this time in Habakkuk too. Mm. Yeah, really, really interesting, fascinating observations. And then uh, we're on to Zephaniah. One of the Z prophets. One of the Z prophets, yes. <laughs> and he is also during the time of Hezekiah, so overlaps with um, the ministry of Isaiah, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Short book as well. Short, yes. It is, um, again, about judgment on the nations, Judah's enemies, Jerusalem, etc., and uh, just a whole lot of three chapters. A wickedness of Jerusalem, yeah, and a promise of a remnant, hmm. um, which is an interesting theme in Scripture as well. It is one that uh, we'll have to follow another time. So then we're at Haggai. Haggai is a pretty cool book because he specifically comes on the scene to encourage God's people to rebuild the temple. Um they are more interested in, in uh, remodeling or building their own homes. And Haggai's like, wait a minute, the big, the big thing that needs done before that is to put the house of God in order. And then you can go about taking care of your own homes. They kind of got things, things backwards, and Haggai calls them to account for that. Mm. Yeah. Again, I don't know that it's, it's that God needs... A physical space, but it was at that part of the story the way in which God's character could be right. encountered and and understood in in their context, so to speak. Um, so, any temptation to uh, apply these to making sure our church buildings are taken care of? Not sure if it's a right. apples to apples comparison, but that's another story, Nathan. Yes. So, and, and I think it's worth noting that if idolatry was the downfall of Israel, it sort of seems quite uninformed to assume that you can, that in the return, as the people are returning to rebuild, that it's going to be, it seems a little foolish for them to neglect the rebuilding of the temple. If idolatry mm-hmm. was their downfall, and they really want to succeed this time. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they focusing on the worship of God 
mm-hmm. to to start on a good foot, to start in a, mm-hmm. a solid foundation. So clearly they haven't learned their lesson. <laughs> that seems to be a prevailing theme in throughout the scripture. It does. And then we wrap up with Zechariah um, through verse 10. Zechariah is an interesting book. He's got some horsemen in here. And uh, there's a, a woman, a wicked woman in a basket with a, a metal lid on top. Is it, did I got the right book, right? Yeah, there's a flying scroll yeah. here. Yeah, there's lots. Uh, there's a there's a uh, a vision of a lampstand with yeah. You know, that's a beautiful. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It's all about about the oil of the spirit. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lots of good stuff there. And that golden lampstand one that that's probably one of the best pieces mm-hmm. of the book, the mm-hmm. reminder of God's Holy Spirit operating in His people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating, you know. Just as a side note, that. God's tendency throughout these prophetic books to use very concrete, you know, object lessons. He has the measuring line as well, you know, and there's prophets where he, you know, whether it's Jeremiah or whomever, you know, to go out and walk around naked, you know, and, hmm. you know, you're, you're, you know, or go marry a prostitute like God, you know, just a fascinating note on God's, you know, way of communicating, um, that he uses very acute kind of concrete examples to draw larger yeah, spiritual for points. Sure. For sure. Yeah, that's a great observation. I love chapter three as well. Um, Zechariah, it should be noted, mm. is, is, um, his ministry takes place during the return of the exiles or, or in Jerusalem <clears throat> mm-hmm. among the returned exiles as the temple's being built. Um, and... Um, Chapter three focuses on Joshua, the high priest, who is high priest among the exiles there and God's blessing on him. God's clothing him with garments of um, takes away the filthy garments vestments. Yes, takes away his filthy garments and clothes him with with pure, clean garments. This is not literally, but spiritually showing that Joshua was qualified by God to lead the people Mm, in worship. Such a powerful metaphor and just mm-hmm. a beautiful, beautiful picture. And uh, you can see kind of what some might call a great controversy there, mm-hmm. where Satan is like laying claim to him and saying, look at his filthiness. And, and uh, you know, God's like, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You know, mm-hmm. like this is a, bl- a, a, a brand plucked from the fire. And like, mm-hmm. he's my guy. And, uh, you know, a picture of the gospel where he's removing the unrighteousness and giving him mm-hmm. this spotless robe of righteousness. So powerful, powerful imagery. Yes. Yeah. So that's a good chapter to, to slow down for in, in uh, Zechariah. That's it for this week, Sean. Do you have anything before we sign off? I got nothing more, Nathan. We, uh, we've basically gotten through the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament yes. portion of it, and now we're getting into, I'm not going to say the good stuff, but I happen to think the best stuff. So that'll yeah. be exciting going forward. Yeah. Well, until next time, lean into the story of God's radical love and enjoy the journey. 
uh, walking along through the books of Scripture. See, experience, live. Loveshaped.life.